0: We should have a choir or chorus. You all sound pretty good. (laughs) I invite you to take out your hymnals and turn to reading number 602 in the back. It's a reading by the Chinese philosopher Lao Tse, If there is to be peace. And I invite you to respond with the words that are in italics. If there is to be peace in the world,
1: there must be peace in the nations.
0: If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be
1: peace in the cities.
0: If there is to be peace in the cities,
1: there must be peace between neighbors.
0: If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home,
1: there must be
0: So locally and across the nation, our elected officials are honoring veterans or getting ready to do that tomorrow, honoring them for their sacrifices. There's an estimated 18.2 billion veterans living in the United States, according to the 2017 census. More than 745,000 of them live in New York State and more about 21,000 are in this congressional district in which we're situated. And so the email that I got on Thursday from my congresswoman had the subject line, saluting those who have sacrificed for us. Now she did all the things you would expect an elected official to do. She conveyed gratitude and respect for veterans. She laid out the way she supported the legislation that supports resources and programs. She mentioned things like spending bills, investing in the Department of Veteran Affairs, removing barriers to mental health care, supporting PTSD treatments, strengthening the veteran's crisis line and suicide prevention activities. And she went on and she closed out by saying, we must remember our enduring commitment to serve them as they have served us. But who is the them? We had a raise of hands that showed us who some of the thems are. And so I imagine for each one of us, someone or several people in your your, uh, life pop into mind when you hear the word veterans. But are they people you really know, whose stories you've really heard? Now, I want to acknowledge that though I'm here leading a service that honors and speaks about the veteran experience. That's not me. Their stories and experiences are not truly mine to tell, regardless of what I've read or heard, which has been plenty. And so I want to start by sharing with you some words from the Reverend Bob Lavalley. He's a former classmate of mine who was a veteran of the Marine Corps, and then later served a year in 2012 in Afghanistan. He was a Department of Defense contractor then, installing and maintaining x-ray scanners at gates that scanned people and cars for bombs. His call to ministry grew from his wartime experience, where he connected with a small Unitarian Universalist fellowship on base. It's the one that was led by the Reverend Ann Tall, who you may know who has served locally our congregation in Rock Tavern. So Bob entered seminary shortly after returning home, which is where our paths crossed. He did part of his chaplaincy training at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in New York City, where he worked primarily in the psych and substance abuse disorder wards. He had been back from his year in Afghanistan less than a year and was still dealing with the impact of his own experience. As he describes it, in that place, meaning the VA hospital, I found not the price of freedom, but the cost of war. Reverend Lavalley is now the assistant minister at the UU congregation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he preached a sermon last weekend on veterans and their stories, which you can find on YouTube. And I wanted to share some of his thoughts with you because they're authentic and because I think there are important lessons here for us to consider. First of all, he wants us to understand that while people serving overseas are focused on coming home, and that is the biggest focus, coming home. Coming home is a mixed bag. For some, it's a joyous occasion, returning to love, to family, the the pride of survival and accomplishment. And for others, it's much harder, returning wounded physically and or mentally, returning to broken families, reintegrating into civilian life can be challenging for veterans, their families, and others in the community. And it doesn't help, he says, if we get led astray by stories that we tell ourselves or if we get caught up in stereotypes and myths and nuances of individual lived experience. The first unhelpful story, he says, is one that veterans might tell themselves. No one else can understand what I went through. Now, speaking for myself, that that rings true. It's also a partial truth. Because in my experience, listening to a small group of Vietnam vets describe their experiences of war and describe their experiences of when PTSD has been triggered, I never truly, completely understood, in a felt and embodied way, what they went through. And I likely never will. That's true. And that's okay, actually. Because being a compassionate, effective listener is healing work. Whatever war trauma a veteran is experiencing, the most successful step in the healing process is for veterans to tell their story to someone who is genuinely willing to listen. That's listening, not debating, (laughs) listening. Then Bob tells us there are two main stories that civilians tell about veterans, ones that are heavy on the use of tropes and stereotypes. The first unhelpful one is all veterans are heroes. And we can see how this gets played out in airports, football games, community-wide homecoming celebrations. But in fact, Reverend LaValley says that many veterans are carrying torment with them day and night. Not feeling at all like a hero. They may have what is called moral injury. Is that a term that's familiar to many of you? Some. So, moral injury, technically speaking, refers to the lasting emotional and psychological, social, behavioral, and spiritual impacts that occur when someone perpetrates or witnesses or fails to prevent an act that transgresses their own moral code or their ethics. Now scholars on moral injury have written tomes about it, studies after study, and how it operates and how it shows up in the lives of veterans. It shows up in ways like this. Feeling shame and alienation and disillusionment after returning from war. Questioning one's worth and goodness as a human being. Feeling like war has awakened one's dark side, Belying any sense of a self as a good person, as a kind spouse or parent, as a gentle and caring friend. Engaging in years or even decades of self-punishing behavior often not even having a real sense of what's driving it. Sabotaging relationships or employment or other sources of potential happiness. Feeling that one doesn't deserve anything positive or fulfilling in life. A sense of emotional numbness, anger or despair. Isolating oneself from intimate relationships Avoiding people and things that once had meaning for them. Sometimes it's losing oneself in a haze of drugs or alcohol or prescription medications. Sometimes it's considering ending your life. And sometimes it is doing so. Pamela Lisey, who was a queer African-American minister in the um, United Methodist tradition and the dean of the, the seminary where I did my education, lifts up her observations about the differences in moral injury for black veterans. She says that black veterans, and we might also think that all people of color would have this experience. Face a unique and more acute form of moral injury. Questions of guilt and shame and grief post-war are more complicated for, for veterans who may ask themselves, how can I be a good person to God? That I did these things, and why did I do these things for a country that is so bad to my people? And so, given these descriptions of moral injury, you can begin to get a sense of why a well-intentioned, patriotic, thank you for your service, can be a loaded, loaded thing for some veterans. The impact of those words can be far different from the intent. The second unhelpful story that Reverend Lavalley says we tell is that all veterans are victims And this is the assumption that they're trapped in a web of economic and social brainwashing, that they couldn't help it. They didn't know what they were getting into. He is quick to point out that that is extremely disrespectful and demeaning to assume that veterans have no agency in their decisions and desire to enlist and serve. As he says, in in fact, most were excited to serve our country, seeing the opportunity as one filled with prestige, fair compensation, education and training, and the chance to travel. And he's quick to point out that the so-called poverty draft is not supported by data. It's a myth. Perpetuating these myths that no one else can understand, that veterans are heroes, that veterans are victims, interferes with the process of healing the wounds of war for our veterans. And it absolves us as a country, as a whole, from wrestling with the difficult questions about our commitments to peacemaking. It behooves us then as citizens and as people of faith to move beyond these misconceptions And to create or avail ourselves of opportunity to get to know the veterans in our lives and communities. To frequent places and times that welcome authentic storytelling and open, compassionate exploration. Places and times in which we honor the veteran's own moral values and judgment. Places and times to build right relationships with one another. The role of faith communities, as I see it, is to be a part of the healing community that welcomes home and tends its wounded that binds up the broken and repairs wounds of the soul and spirit. For the work of healing is not the exclusive purview of veterans meeting behind closed doors with mental and professional health care providers. Now, for sure, a good part of the work of healing for anyone who has endured a trauma or a wound is individual work and its inwardly focused. Father Thomas Keating is a renowned Trappist monk who died last year, who spent many, many years of his um, service in the religious faith um, counseling veterans. And he observed that veterans aren't able to forgive themselves. So he and others have stressed the necessity and importance of doing the work of forgiving oneself, acknowledging and attempting to make amends for the harm done, as distinct from excusing or condoning one's actions, and forgiving oneself and recognizing the self as a fallible person, a person engaged in continuing moral growth and development. It's critical to help veterans work through their guilt and shame, honor and recommit to values, re-engage with their family and community, and gradually restore an integrated, life-affirming moral identity. But that type of work doesn't happen in isolation. It happens for veterans and for anyone who's been wounded in the context of a full life. It happens in personal relationships and families and communities, and it requires both personal and spiritual growth rooted in personal and communal values. It happens when one is embedded in a moral community. Edward Tick, who was a psychotherapist and author whose work focused on veterans and PTSD says that the prescription for healing PTSD and moral injury is to focus on spirituality within the whole community, not just among veterans. He's a co-founder of an organization called Soldiers Heart, a nonprofit that focuses on soul wounding and spiritual traumas of war. And although that organization just ceased its operations earlier this year, in its 13 years of existence, they trained untold number of therapists in private practice, uh, over 3,000, I believe, chaplain corps of the US Army and National Guard. And they led healing retreats for veterans and help communities more fully participate in homecoming and healing work with the veterans in their midst. Reverend Lavallee, who I mentioned earlier, Worked as a volunteer chaplain with the organization, and I had the good fortune to attend one of the Soldier Hearts workshops in 2017, Healing the Wounded Warriors, where I participated side by side with veterans and chaplains and seminarians and other civilians, family members. Several of the participants were veterans of the Vietnam War who were preparing to return there as part of a healing retreat one of them, for the second time. Part of the program and part of the atonement and restitution aspects is that Tick has led um, healing retreats on 16 different occasions to Vietnam. He's working mainly with Vietnam vets. And there they have visited sites that they remembered, retraced their steps. And they have built two schools and about six or seven homes for the destitute, including the disabled veterans and Agent arm victims that they left behind. In an interview about his work with veterans, Tick said it's much easier to forgive themselves when atonement is involved. Now traditionally, soldiers join up to preserve and protect, but war makes them cause death and destruction. So when they can return to feeling like a preserver and a protector, he says it lifts the moral stain and it gives them a new identity. It affirms their original reasons and spiritual reasons for being a warrior. Ed Tick also stresses the importance of the community and the role of civilians in healing. During his retreats and in some community events, he had the civilians say to the veterans these words You are our warriors. You acted in my name under my commands, with me paying the bill, and you served in my place so I don't have to. So I willingly lift the burden of responsibility off you alone, and I put it on my shoulders and return it to our nations where it belongs. And so I'm having the reaction that I had in this workshop when we did this exercise. And Tick observed that when we do that, that the warriors and the civilians just break down in tears and fall into each other's arms and cry with great, great relief. And it is transformative and life-changing all. If we were all together now to say for the veterans within and beyond earshot, we willingly lift the burden of responsibility and put it on our shoulders and return it to our nation where it begins. Can you imagine how liberating and freeing this work can be for the veteran to whom we are indebted? Can you imagine? the transformational possibilities? And do you hear the importance of participating in community conversations and rituals of mutual responsibility about being vulnerable about our own relationship to war and its aftermath? And as Unitarian Universalists, we can't imagine One of our guiding principles, our sixth principle, is that we affirm and promote the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And we have a lot to say about that, especially in uh, our 2010 Statement of Conscience on creating peace. This is a process that goes through a four-year study process, amendments, uh, discussions, debates, and the release of a statement that from the Delegates of General Assembly. In that statement, we say that we are a people called to the work of peace building, peacemaking, and peacekeeping. A people who advocate a culture of peace and nonviolence and conflict prevention. We say we're a people who repudiate aggressive and preventive wars and extended military occupations. And at the same time, we affirm a range of individual choices, including military service and conscientious objection, as fully compatible with Unitarian Universalism. We say, for those among us who make a formal commitment to military service, we will honor their commitment, welcome them home, and offer pastoral support and we acknowledge that at times we have condemned the violence of others without acknowledging our own complicity in violence. The statement goes on to lay out multiple calls to action items for creating peace, and it models itself on the reading that we shared earlier. It calls for creating peace within our world, our society, our communities, our congregation, our relationships, and within ourselves. This day and other days, that statement might be worth a review. You can find it online, and I have it with me today, too, so that together we may once again resolve to foster understanding in our communities and create peace, liberty, and justice for our veterans. I want to close with these words from Kimberly Paquette, a Unitarian Universalist who writes that she first identified publicly as a veteran years after leaving the military service during a Veterans Day worship service in her home congregation. She said she was immediately struck by one woman who approached her after the service. She was a longtime beloved member of the congregation and her high school son, age son was considering joining the Marines. She did not know what to do. She was certain that as a peace-loving people, her congregation, our congregation, would not understand or support her or her son. Kimberly says, we need to do better than that. Our congregation must be open to our members, their families, and their friends who choose to serve in the military. Our military needs deep change. And we are best prepared to do that change when it's inundated with people, our people, who work for peace, justice, are tolerant, and are respectful. May it be so.